Nathan. Um, I wanted to publicly thank Phil for scheduling such an uplifting psalm and uh, <laughs> for me today. Um, it says, um, this has been great for me to be able to study this and to try and understand what God might be saying to me through this. So I want to start by talking about how we can be alone in the world. There are seven and a half billion people in the world. If we were to hold hands and stretch around the world, we'd go around the equator 35 times. There are 324 million people in this country, and fully half of them have Facebook accounts, 165 million Facebook accounts. The median number of friends that an individual has on Facebook is 200. The average is 380. So you might ask, how can anyone be alone in the world with all that connectedness? Yet that's the case here in this psalm, but also in this room. We may not be, we may not be alone, but we feel alone. It's not hard to look at this psalm and see the elements of the life of Jesus in it. There was sour wine given to him when he was thirsty, alienation from his brothers. He was hated without a cause abandoned by his friends. It's just as easy to see ourselves in this psalm. The big problem is loneliness. And the big point is that we have a Savior and a God that knows all too well our feelings of loneliness. But how does that help us? Does it make us feel less alone? Can we really identify with his sufferings? Can he really identify with our sufferings? For me, sometimes I think a stumbling block to this identification is that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. And I think there's a tendency at times to think that somehow being fully God mutes or softens Jesus' humanity. You know, he's, not, he's a man, but he's God. So I want us to take a look at that today. And this is a great psalm to do that. Diedrich Bonhoeffer has called all of the psalms the prayer book of Jesus. We can see it in the way that Jesus used the psalms in his ministry, that he meditated on these. Tim Keller calls Psalm 69 part of the prayer diary of Jesus because he referenced this psalm when he was talking about himself. I don't think we can read this psalm without seeing the reality of Jesus' humanity and the real pain and the real loneliness that he suffered. Now, his humanity and his loneliness starts with his descent from heaven. We're going to look at Philippians 2, which we looked at in our small group this past week, and it was very helpful um, to help shape this discussion. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus' union with the Father and the Spirit is one that we don't have a real earthly parallel to. Marriage and childbearing, while intimate, only begin to approximate 
the reality of Jesus' relationship with the Father and the Spirit. From eternity's past, they were one. To release his grasp on that relationship, to empty himself, to set aside the rights and privileges that were due to him was more wrenching than divorce. It was more painful than childbirth. He set aside the beauty of holiness. He set aside his authority. He set aside his sovereignty, his infinite being, and he let go of his position in heaven. And he became a speck of living matter in the womb of a teenage girl in a dusty village in a remote, ignored corner of the world. He was fully human. And any way you cut it, that was degradation for him of a kind that we just don't know. But the fact that he was separated from the perfect union of the Trinity, and he felt that separation in a way that we feel when we lose loved ones. Many people in this room have suffered the loss of loved ones. They'll tell you it leaves a hole in your heart. It leaves a hole in your life. And the things that you're used to getting from those people just aren't there anymore. And they never will be again fully in this life. Jesus knew and felt that. Verse 8 of our psalm says... Should I use that mic over there? This is kind of going. I'm okay? Okay. I have bec- verse 8 says, I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. Even in his surrogate family here on earth, he felt what it was like to be alone. He was rejected by his neighbors and his rela- relatives in Nazareth after he read and preached to them in the synagogue. They wanted to throw him over a cliff. John 7, 5 says, Not even his brothers believed in him. And they even ask him to go away from Galilee. Go do your preaching someplace else. You're embarrassing us. Now, many of us know strained family relationships. Many of us know firsthand the sadness and the strife and the stress that strained family relationships bring. Jesus was separated from his eternal family, rejected by his earthly brothers and relatives. You can say Jesus knew loneliness acutely. Verse 20, reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. Jesus was ultimately in his trials in Jerusalem, abandoned by his followers, and deserted by his closest friends. When praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, his closest disciples slept instead of keeping watch. When he was seized in the garden later that night, it says all the disciples left and fled. Later that same evening, we know Peter denied even knowing who he was. Each one of us, not as dramatically as that, but each one of us knows what it's like to feel that you're without a friend, that no one understands the depth of your need, the heaviness of your burden, that nobody truly cares and that we're alone in our trial. We've all felt that. Jesus felt and saw a very real abandonment from his friends. The next day, he felt and saw and experienced a very real rejection and true scorn by those 
who had only recently welcomed into the city with acclamations and hosannas. They turned on him, and they turned on him without pity. Jesus knew loneliness acutely. Verse 4 says, Mighty are those that would destroy me. Often we feel like our bosses, our teachers, uh, those in authority over us are unfair, even cruel, and we have nowhere to turn. Jesus had no advocates. He was persecuted and prosecuted by the most influential Jewish leaders and by their highest court, and he was sentenced to die by the governor of the state. The mighty aligned themselves to destroy him. He knew loneliness acutely. When he was on the cross, he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He didn't say, My Father, why have you forsaken me? This was the cry of a man who was completely alone. And I think our most hopeless feeling of loneliness is when we feel that God is absent, that we can't hear him and we feel that he's left us. This psalm is suffused with that longing to feel and to hear and to know the presence of God and to be saved from trial. When we don't have that grounding of God's presence, we are like a drowning man. Everything is water, and we're overwhelmed. This was brought home to me very, in a very real way as I helped my organization in historic preservation to respond to the flooding in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. Our focus was to preserve historic homes in one of the most historic cities and to help people return to their homes. It was intense. It was chaotic. And I was working with all my might to keep up with the demand. One Friday, about three months after the storm, the New York Times ran a front-page story that said the city of New Orleans was scheduled to demolish 10,000 homes in the city. Well, there was general panic in our headquarters at that time in Washington, D.C. And all that day there were phone calls, and at the end of the day, it fell to me and me alone to get ten times the number of volunteers into New Orleans in the next two weeks than we had been able to get in the previous three months total. It was overwhelming. I was completely overwhelmed and distraught. I had been keeping my head up by treading water, but now I just sank. I went under. I was distraught. I couldn't sleep. That night, three in the morning, I'm in the kitchen. I'm reading my Bible, something that I had neglected to do during that time. I can't tell you what I was reading, but I can tell you what I felt. I can't do this. I cannot do this. I can't do this. I was on the floor. I was saying that audibly for I don't know how long. Felt like an hour. was probably a couple of minutes. But I had reached the bottom. Fortunately for me, the bottom was solid ground. And down at the bottom waiting for me was God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That confession of my need for them was what God was waiting to hear. I'm not going to tell you that the next morning I woke up and it was all sunshine and bluebirds, because it wasn't. 
but things worked out, and the best thing is I knew I wasn't alone, and I never would be alone. And that's our encouragement. We aren't alone. We don't need to feel alone. Not only was Jesus acquainted with the things that we suffer from, loss of family, strained relationships, abandonment, my friend, persecution by authorities, and silence from God, he suffered those things for a reason, and that's so we wouldn't be alone. Isaiah describes that servant well, the man of sorrows we sang about. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. He came to serve us, and he came to save us. Verse 4 of our psalm says, What I did not steal, I then have to restore. Jesus restored us to kinship with God. He paid for what we tried to steal from God, and he redeemed us. Jesus said, I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. In John 15, he quotes from Psalm 69 when talking about the world's hatred for him and of his followers. He says, they hated me without a cause. But in the next breath, he says, but the Helper, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. This is the Helper the Holy Spirit, that Jesus says will be with us forever. And he dwells with us, and he dwells in us. Jesus knew loneliness acutely, but he lives in fellowship with us and with the Father and the Holy Spirit. So if our encouragement is to remember that God is always with us, what does that knowledge do for us? What does it challenge us to do? I believe it challenges us to live as servants of Christ and to love as he loved. If he suffered for us, can we suffer for him? Can we suffer for each other? Can we suffer with each other? Jesus suffered and was hated because he lived a holy life. The psalmist suffered and was hated only because he was serving God. Would anyone hate me if they looked at the way I loved God and the way I served God? So how can we serve and love God and each other? That's a platitude to say that's what we're supposed to do. It can happen in a lot of different ways, and I want to look at one application of how we can serve God. And the application comes from a very unlikely source in Psalm 69. I'm going to talk about the elephant in the room. If you look at the verses that we didn't read, you'll see six verses there, 22 through 28, that are pretty difficult. They are the psalmist calling down curses on his enemies. These are known as imprecatory uh, verses, and the psalms are called imprecatory psalms, and that means cursing. That's what imprecatory means. 
These kind of verses are puzzling, sometimes even disturbing to read. And I want to share some helpful thoughts about how to look at those kind of verses. Not a full exposition of these particular ones, but something that's been helpful to me as I've been preparing this and I've learned. And I think I want to look at them, hopefully you'll follow me, in a way that gives direction on how we can serve God. So some things I've learned in looking at the imprecatory verses. One, they are part of the full counsel of God. They're part of Holy Scripture. They're not to be ignored. They're not to be explained away. They're not to be diminished. They are part of Scripture. We need to understand them. The second, in every instance, these verses are directed at the enemies of God, not the enemies of the psalmist. Now, to the degree that these enemies attack the writer for his devotion to God, uh, they persecute him and ridicule him for his service to God, they're attacking God. The third, it's explicit in some verses, and it's implicit in just about all, that these enemies remain enemies of God despite prayers, despite love and service being given to them by God's people. These are enemies of God in a consistent, unrepentant, mocking, and hating way. They're not just ignorant and unknowing people. They're active enemies of God. The fourth thing is to remember when these were written. Although grace was given and Jesus was foreshadowed in the Old Testament, grace was not as fully and completely displayed as it would be by the life and the teaching, the ministry, and the sacrifice of Jesus. The grace exists and covers those who have come to him in faith. However, when Jesus returns, he's going to return as a judge. He's going to be holy, powerful, righteous, altogether good, and just. But he's a judge when he returns. I think the imprecatory psalms can be looked at legitimately as prophetic writings anticipating Jesus' return and God's final judgment. These curses represent God's judgment against his unrepentant enemies. And that's a hard truth. We don't like thinking about that aspect of God and of Jesus. But if Jesus died to save us, and we are saved by faith, this represents what we have been saved from. And we need to remember that. So how do we use that knowledge? How do we use that, those verses? How can we use that understanding to direct our service? I think in two ways. One is that these verses ought to remind us as to God's power and his holiness and that he alone, he alone is the judge of people's hearts. That's not our job. We're not to appropriate these kind of verses to pronounce eternal condemnation and judgment. God's got that. We don't need to be doing that. The second reminder is that Jesus gave us instruction on how we are to deal with our enemies. We're to love our enemies. We're to love our neighbors as ourselves. We're to pray for those that persecute us. We're to forgive those that do evil. We're to turn the other cheek. So before we call on God to annihilate our enemies, we've got a checklist. Are we loving our enemies? Are we praying for them? 
Are we forgiving those that do evil to us? Have we turned our cheek? Are we identifying our enemies? Are we identifying God's enemies? It's good counsel that we get from Paul in Romans where he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's how we can serve God and how we can learn from Psalm 69, even the difficult verses. We love each other. We love our enemies. Even if you're hated for it, don't despair. God is with you. Jesus went through those sufferings so that you, don't be, you won't be alone. God is with you always and in every circumstance. If you've lost loved ones, if you have difficult family relations, if you've been friendless, or if you've been treated unfairly at work, you're being prepared to recognize and help others that are in that situation. As it says toward the end of Psalm 69, you who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners, even prisoners of loneliness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus and what he did, what he gave up, what he endured, and what he conquered on our behalf. I pray that you would encourage each one of us in our hearts and in our lives to be bold because we step out in faith with you with us. So give us that courage, give us that fortitude, give us that encouragement when it's easy for us to forget when we're in times of darkness and in trial. And we thank you always in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen.